This morning's reading comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. The final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he'll separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep in his right hand and the goats in his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For when I was for I was hungry, and you gave and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever give you? When, when did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it for, for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and all his angels. For, when I was, for I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away to their eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. Good morning. It's lovely to be with you this morning. Let me say straight away how much I am missing you and looking forward to seeing you all again soon. It's been a tough time for so many people. Missing friends, missing loved ones, coping with this lockdown. And I know it's been tough for some. I found it a particularly valuable time in some ways, which may sound odd, because I've had time to reflect on many things. And I've also had a good bit of time to prepare for this morning. But what did stand out to me as I was talking to people and have been talking to people over these last few weeks is that many of them have used the word coping. They're coping with things. But what do we mean by coping? Well, if you look at the Oxford Dictionary, it says dealing successfully with a situation or life in general. With a situation or life in general. And over the years, many philosophies have come about um, that talk about how you should cope with life based on that philosophy. I was reading a book not long back called Laugh Again by Chuck Swindoll, who's an American broadcaster, author, church leader, theologian, uh, very well regarded. And I certainly am a fan and love reading his books and listening to his broadcasts. But in this book, he set out a number of philosophies over the years that have emerged that would uh, set out to help people cope with life. The Greeks said, be wise, know yourself. The Romans said, be strong discipline yourself. As we move towards the Enlightenment, education said be resourceful, expand yourself. As we moved into the 1800s and 1900s and psychology really took hold, we see the phrase be confident 
assert yourself. Humanism says, be capable, believe in yourself. But Christianity is different. Christianity says, be unselfish, humble yourself. Be unselfish, humble yourself. Interesting, isn't it? And why does it say that? Very simply this. In Matthew chapter 20, in verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Be unselfish and humble yourself. Be unselfish, humble yourself. You see, at the heart of Christianity is serving. And this means giving of ourselves and all we've been given by him. And we are never more like Jesus than when we're giving. Today, many in the Western world start with the thought, get all you can. Get all you can. But to be like Jesus, we must give. And to give, we must serve. To give, we must serve. And when we declare ourselves followers of Jesus, we're saying that we will be obedient to him in the task of serving and giving. We will be obedient. And obedience is not easy. I can tell you that for myself. It's not easy. So this morning, my theme is giving. But I can't speak about this without coupling it with serving. But this morning, I'm not going to tell you about how you should serve. I'm certainly not going to tell you how you should give. In a way, what I want to try and do is to get you to think about these things. I'm certainly not going to tell you that you need to serve more or give more. That's not my role or responsibility. That's between you and God. However, this morning, I am going to share some of what Jesus says and demonstrates about these two issues and hopefully give you some food for thought. I know that the process of study and preparing for this morning has, has certainly impacted on me to make changes and seek to do differently. So here we go. I hope you're ready. Okay, well, where I want to start really is uh, the reading we had this morning, which Amy kindly read to us, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And in this reading, we see very clearly that Jesus, what he expects from his sheep, he expects them to serve others and in doing so, serve him. To serve, which means that we give the best of ourselves and all that we've been given in all that we do. And we do it for him. You see, Jesus judges service and giving. That's tricky. Jesus taught about service and he modeled service. And he said in these passages, we will be judged on whether we have been servants or not. He expects it of us. He expects it of us. But the passage is one of the most disturbing passages in the New Testament. It is Jesus' description of the final judgment, sometimes called the sheep and the goat judgment. And Jesus said that when he returns in glory in the second coming, he's going to sit on his throne. And he's going to pass judgment on the people of the earth. And he'll divide them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. People are going to be divided. And they're going to be divided into sheep and the goats, metaphorically speaking. It's a disturbing passage theologically. Because Jesus said that the basis of the judgment will be whether we've been servants. Whether we've helped the needy. And we don't like to hear this. 
because we start to think our actions or works secure our salvation. And that's confusing. Yet the scriptures make it clear that they don't. You see, our salvation is based on the grace of God and our faith in Jesus Christ. The grace of God and our faith in Jesus Christ. That secures our salvation. Not works, but we are expected to serve and to give. Why don't we like to hear this? Well, I think sometimes it's because it's too challenging. It's too challenging. Because Jesus is saying, I believe that you should show your real faith to the world and show that you know me by serving. He expects those who believe to be servants and to give themselves totally in serving him. After all, what good is it to say, I believe in Christ, but there's no evidence in our lives to prove it. If we have faith, we should show it in how we live. Good works don't save us, but they prove we're saved. And that's an important thing to remember. But Jesus' words about judgment often disturb us for a more personal reason. You see, some people aren't comfortable with serving and being servants. They're not comfortable with giving. We'd rather hear that the evidence of real saving faith is that we go to a lot of church meetings, which we can easily do. We're at church every week, which we can do. Or that one is intellectually convinced that Christianity is true because we read, we read. We've academically explored it and we're convinced of it. We don't want to hear about service because we don't always choose to serve. And I'll put my hand up there. I have been in that place at times. And looking back now, I'm not proud of it. I'm not always willing to be, to serve and to give everything. Let me tell you a true story. Back in the 50s in Korea, there was a surgeon who in fact was an American missionary doctor and he had just conducted this operation and when he finished the perspiration ran from his forehead. His eyes were very glassy, his lips were almost purple from unrelenting strain and his hands were trembling. One of the people who was assisting him turned to him and said, how much would you get for this operation in the States? The surgeon turned around and said, well, quite a lot. It was a complicated procedure. How much are you going to get for it here? The doctor looked at the poor Korean woman who had come to him with only a coin in her hand and she'd asked for help in the name of Christ. And the tears welled up in the doctor's eyes. And with a choking voice, he said, well, for this, I'll get nothing but her gratitude and my master's smile. But that, sir, is worth more than all the plaudits and money the world can give. Gratitude and my master's smile. You see, service in the vocabulary of the world is often synonymous with duty and necessary chore. And that often builds up resentment in people that has done to me in the past. I had a real downer on the idea of duty in years gone by. And to many in our hypersensitive society, the label servant is quite offensive. To them, it would mean belonging to a lower class of people. They think it demeaned their status in life, marked them as common people. So consequently, it's avoided at all costs. However, 
we need to look to Jesus. We need to look because Jesus modelled service. That's my second point. He modelled service. He not only judged it, but he models it. In John chapter 13, verses 12 to 15, we come across that wonderful story of the uh, Thursday night at Passover week and Jesus is with his disciples. He knows what's coming, but once again, he models servanthood. He knew that the time of his death was near. This Passover meal was going to be his last chance to share in a personal and touching way with his disciples. The last time to talk to him, the last time to teach them, before he had to face the dizzying trials and the rounds of the Jewish high court, Caiaphas, Annas, Herod and Pilate, knowing that the next sundown he'd be dead. You know, and during the meal, while well, Jesus, he took off his cloak and he tied up his long gown uh, with a towel. And as the disciples lounged on the cushions, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with a the towel. And when he came to that impetuous Simon Peter, he was one of my real heroes. Uh, the disciple at first refused to let Jesus wash his feet. He said no. But then he relented. And slowly around the table, Jesus went until he had washed all their feet. The place must have been silent. They'd never seen Jesus do this before. Never seen it. When he finished, he put his cloak back on, he sat down in his place and he told them he'd set an example that they should do as he has done for them. But what did Jesus mean that they should do as he had done? Well, some groups take this at face value, and every now and again they have these foot washing services. I've been involved in one or two in the past at churches I've attended. And they're lovely occasions. But it's not just about that. It's not about simply mimicking his actions. And we know that, and the disciples knew that. They knew clearly what he meant. It was about giving of everything, in the lowest way if need be, to serve others and to give of yourself. He'd acted out for them a basic truth of Christianity. The job in washing feet is a, it's a filthy job. Usually it was given to the lowest servant in the household. But Jesus, he acted this out to his disciples. He voluntarily took the lowest position, the lowest status. and took and gave away any prestige he might have had. Amazing, isn't it? He modelled, he modelled service. And serving leads directly into the act of giving. In fact, it, it is giving. So what I'd like to do now is just examine some basic principles of New Testament giving. Give you something to think about. Because for some of us, it can be a difficult thought process to go through. And the difficult decisions have to be made. What do I do with my time? What do I do with my possessions? What do I do with my gifts? What do I do with my home? What do I do with my money? And it's worth examining it. You know, you can blindly follow what other people do. But where's the real merit in that? If you're not sure about why you're doing it. What's the benefit of it? Not for you, but for others. And how does that relate to Jesus? So we're going to have a look at that. I want to start by telling you a little story. You see, some time back, Teresa was in hospital and very poorly. About two years ago, three years ago, I lose track. 
And um, obviously during the day she had visitors. And one of the visitors one afternoon was my son-in-law, Jason. And they were having a chat together. And lo and behold, who should turn up with that bad penny, Mark Fairweather at all. And he arrived on the scene at the hospital and Teresa was so pleased to see him and she introduced Jason to Mark because they'd not met before and they had a lovely time together and then Mark took his leave and Jason stayed on. After he'd gone, Jason said, so what's his job again? And Teresa explained, he's our pastor, he's our minister. Um, and she explained what that meant. And she said, well, does he do this all the while? Oh yeah, she says, that's his full-time job. What, 37 hours a week, 40 hours a week? Oh no, she said, maybe they may be his ours, but he puts a lot more than that into it. He gives of himself. Wow. How does he earn a living? Well, the church pays him. Pays him? Yeah, it pays him a salary. Oh, what, the church? He went, yeah, well, where did he get the money? From all the people in the church. So does he get a good salary? Well, I think it's, you know, it's a reasonable salary. Oh, and the money comes from the people. Yeah, and he was bowled over by that. He just found that amazing. He's never been to church, he's not churched. And he's learning all the time now about what church means and about what who Jesus is. So he's always asking questions. But at that time, he was amazed that people would give. You see, the disciples of Jesus gave up everything to follow him. They left behind their homes and their jobs, security, to follow this Nazarene carpenter. But why did they do it? Why would they give up everything to follow an itinerant preacher? I'll tell you why, because they were captured by a cause. The kingdom of God was at hand, the Son of God was in their midst, and they wanted to be a part of a life-changing cause. And their actions, or those actions, didn't stop then. No, it carried on. Look at the book of Acts. Men and women giving up houses, incomes, possessions, land, time and talents, all to follow Jesus. These people were persecuted. They were murdered. They endured suffering. Why would they do that? Why would they endure such pain and torture? Because they saw themselves as part of a great cause. The early Christians saw giving as the means of kingdom building. Giving what they could, the expression of God's kingdom on earth could occur. You see, we can selfishly live for ourselves, meagerly exist and eventually die. Or we can give ourselves to the greatest cause, reaching people for Christ and therefore find life. Giving begins with a cause. Is it your cause? Have you bought into it? Have you made that decision that you're going to give everything to the cause? Well, I thought I did that when I first gave my life to Jesus. And I realised I hadn't. It took me a lot of years to get to that point where I could say, everything I have is yours and actually mean it and do it. So it's not an easy journey. Not an easy journey. But giving begins with the cause. Second thing I want to talk to you about is going back to that uh, verse in Matthew chapter 20. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, giving entails sacrifice. And if godly giving entails a sacrifice, does he expect anything less from us? You know, Jesus observed a very touching event. Uh, he watched people give contributions to the temple. Many people gave a lot. 
considerable amounts. But then came the widow and she gave two coins that amounted to less than a penny. And Jesus used her actions as an object lesson for his disciples. Jesus said to his disciples that the size of the gift does not matter as much as the size of the sacrifice. The woman could have kept one of the coins and everyone would have understood knowing her situation. But she gave everything she had. She didn't hold anything back. The heart of Christianity says that you haven't given God anything until you've given him everything. At 30, Florence Nightingale wrote in her diary, I'm 30 years of age, the age at which Christ began his mission. Now, no more childish things, no more vain things. Now, Lord, let me think only of thy will. Years later, near the end of her illustrious and heroic life, she was asked for her life secret and she replied, well, I can only give one explanation. That is, I've kept nothing back from God. Kept nothing back. I was recently reading in Malachi chapter 1, where God speaks to his people and rebukes them for their sacrificial offerings. They were blemished and not at their best. They gave to God as a sacrifice what they themselves didn't want. He demands our best, you see, at all times. And he's certainly not happy when we give second best. When we give what we don't want. We don't need it so we can give it. Our service, our giving should not feel like a sacrifice. It should fill us with great joy. And that will only happen when we give of our best. So giving entails a sacrifice. And the last two things for this morning. Very briefly, giving produces joy. I remember people saying to me years ago, give until it hurts. My friends, that is not true. People don't give because it hurts. They give because it feels good. And Jesus himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. The happiest people on earth are givers. They have discovered the joy of giving. My friends, do you sit there leading up to Christmas or leading up to a birthday of a loved one or friend, wrapping their present up and feeling totally miserable because you've spent the money and looking at it and think, well, I could use this more than they could. No. If you're like me, you're sitting there thinking, oh, I can't wait for them to open this present and I really hope they like it. Oh, and it's just so great. I'd love to give them these things. Author and historian Thomas Carlyle tells how when he was a boy, a beggar came to his door and his parents were out and he looked at the man and he thought, hmm, that's so sad. And on a boy's impulse, he broke into his own savings bank and gave the beggar all that was in it. And later in life, he said that never before or since had he known such sheer joy in giving. Giving produces joy. And finally, and I think in some ways even more importantly, giving leads to life. You know, in the Holy Land, fresh water comes down from a brook to the fields of the Sea of Galilee. And that body of water has always been fruitful in fish. And then the Sea of Galilee takes the water and it gives it to the Jordan River. And that famous river uses its water to turn the desert into a rose and make it the land of milk and honey. And then the Jordan River spills into the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea doesn't have an outlet. It takes the water in, but it gives nothing away. And that produces the saline problem, which makes it salty and dead. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. 
For me, this is a universal principle. One has to give to live. Give and it will be given to you, Jesus said. I was reading another book not so long back um, by a man called Carl Menninger. And uh, he's a, an eminent uh, American psychiatrist. And he's written a number of books. And this one uh, was very interesting. And it talked about how people behave um, and how people have mental health problems and issues impact on them. And he was looking at um, the actions that people take. And he made this statement. And maybe you could challenge it, maybe not. I don't know, but it was interesting. And he said this, our capacity to give is one of the best indications of good mental health. I've known very few generous people who suffered from mental health problems. Interesting, isn't it? The fact remains abundant living begins with abundant giving. Abundant living begins with abundant giving. And I'm not teaching a prosperity theology here. But what I do know is this, that my life has been better and God has blessed me in so many ways, not least in drawing me even closer to him, as my life has changed in such a way that I'm more prepared to give and to give everything I am totally to him. Giving leads to life and life abundant. To a conclusion, you know, it's uh, funny as I was preparing this because I sort of thought, hmm, I wonder how it's going to be received. I don't know how you've received it this morning. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it interesting. I hope you found it thought-provoking. But let me just remind you again of a few of the main points. You see, when it comes to service and giving, Jesus does judge us. The Bible says so. When it comes to knowing what to do in service and giving, Jesus modelled it. Why would we do this? Because we have a cause to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But it entails a sacrifice. The sacrifice shouldn't be painful, shouldn't be difficult, shouldn't be awful. It should be a real joy. Because the love that we have for Jesus Christ make that sacrifice just one of the greatest things that we can do as he did for us. Giving produces joy and giving leads to life, an abundant life. When we serve and give of ourselves, our heart is changed and the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ shows through. Isn't that what we were called to do? Isn't that what we made a commitment to do? Why? Because we love Jesus and he's given everything for us. And in truth, how little he really asks of us in return. So why don't we go for a big time? Why don't we give everything to Jesus? Seek God's will. Ask him what to do. Ask him where we need to change. Ask him what needs to be different. And your life will be blessed. I'm absolutely sure of it. Amen. Let me pray for you. For Lord and Father, I pray that your words, that the teachings of Jesus will touch all of us this morning. That through this time together, 
we will start on a new journey, a different journey, a journey with a greater cause than ever before. As we look to you to guide us in how we need to serve and to give in the days ahead. Amen. So, I do look forward to seeing you all again soon. Enjoy the rest of the day and bless you. Bless you big time. Love you all. Bye.